0: I really reached the top. Here, here's where we kind of have some another up and down. Is I, I, I felt I reached the top when we got to the Playboy Mansion. I've I mentioned this on other interviews, but um, when you get to the Playboy Mansion with with uh, Emma Stone and John Lovitz and David Spade and Adam Sandler and you know these folks, I'm going, I, I have arrived.
1: Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Hey, everybody. So that was Mr. John M's voice that you heard at the beginning of this episode today. Not me, John M, but another... John M. from the Nashville, Tennessee area. And John M. has been on a, uh, for lack of a better term, I guess, a wild ride, both uh, before he got sober and after getting sober. And uh, we talk about the seven-second incident, which was an auto accident that changed john's life forever uh he ended up losing uh uh, his leg from the knee down and uh, uh he describes that in detail and we talk about his uh visit to the the playboy mansion and how he ended up getting there uh, John addresses a uh, sex addiction, a uh, cross addiction, uh, his uh, uh, involvement with uh, SA. Believe I have got that right, sex, sex anonymous. If I'm uh, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, or I got the right acronym. Um, and uh, one of the uh, oh, I guess most captivating moments, at least for me, during this interview, when he was when he talks about the day his uh, brother uh, did not show up for work, and he got that call. And eventually, what that ended up meaning for him and in his life. And so, before we get on to that, though, I just want to uh, put out a, another call for those who, for if there's anybody out there who would be interested in moderating a uh, Facebook group uh, for uh, Sober Speak, uh, just let me know. Uh, you know, it may work, it may not, it may be a fit, uh, uh, but we shall see. And I have three specific asks of you this week. Number one. Uh, if you are enjoying uh, sober speak, and if there's any one of the speakers that you that have uh, resonated with you, would you please take a moment and share? Uh, that episode or the podcast in general with a friend, um, I would surely appreciate it. You know, I spend a lot of time with these uh, guests and uh, and they pour out their heart and they're vulnerable and I absolutely love what they put down on tape and I just want it to be shared with uh, as many people as possible. Um, if indeed you are an iTunes subscriber, I've never asked this before, but apparently all the podcasters do this. Uh, if you're an iTunes subscriber, please leave us your a review on iTunes. Apparently, it really helps in the uh, I guess what you would call the the algorithms and how people end up finding. Uh, uh, sober speak, you know. Ultimately, it's God's will. But uh, you know, if you can, great. If not, hey, I still want you listening, right? Uh, and then the third thing is, is that you can follow me on Instagram. Uh, I would love to have you follow me on Instagram. We're getting a lot of. Um, uh, discussions going there recently, so in that sober speak, all one word. And this is not an ask, but this is more of a program note. I want to let you know if the if you are wondering how can I how can I listen to what's the easiest way to get notifications for sober speak? You can actually text the word sober. S O B E R, by the way, this is in the United States only, but you could text the word sober, S O B E R, to 31996. Now, a little bit of feedback. Uh, we had some listener feedback this week from Miss Jenna S. Jenna writes in, she says, I have been sober since July 21st, 2014, but about six weeks ago, I had what I guess could be described as a spiritual awakening. Even though I was sober, I was miserable as ever. Can anybody else uh, relate to that out there? I was a tornado in the lives of others, as it describes on page 82 of the big book. I was having trouble in relationships, and I felt so very so very disconnected from God. A friend recommended listening to Wayne Dyer podcast, so I downloaded Podbean, the app, and immediately uh, uh, started to check him out. Then, out of curiosity, I searched the word, quote, sober, unquote, and came up with sober speak. I really enjoy the discussion format. It really gives new depth and weight to the recovery stories. I in particular enjoyed Brenda J. I heard her story on a different podcast, so it was awesome to hear the dialogue between you two and get to know her better. I am very busy thanks to my sobriety, of course, two children, age nine and eight, a full-time job, volunteer work, meetings, etc., Listening to podcasts at my desk at work has become paramount to my sobriety and has helped catapult my recovery over these last six weeks into a new dimension. I am so grateful for finding you! Thank you so much for your service. Exclamation point, Jenna S. of St. Louis, Missouri, here in the United States. Well, Jenna S., thank you so much for listening. Thank you for the feedback. I've said this before in other podcasts, but feedback like this and other comments that I get absolutely put gas in my tank, and I can't thank you anymore. By the way, the uh Uh, The podcast that she referenced there, Brenda J. If you haven't had a chance to listen to that, I'm not looking at the episode number right now, but it's about four or five episodes back from this one that I'm publishing here. Uh, Definitely go back and listen to Brenda J. Uh, It'll knock your socks off, I promise. So one more thing, and then we are going to get on to Mr. John M. from Nashville and uh i was recently at a confirmation ceremony for my son he is a middle schooler uh, he was going through what is referred to as confirmation at church. Uh, it's, a, it's a process uh, to where kids kind of accept faith uh, on their own, for their own selves, as opposed to what their parents have been telling them up to now. And uh, the youth pastor at our church, uh, an, an absolutely fantastic youth pastor, he does wonderful things with the kids. Uh, he was addressing a group of confirmation students regarding their own personal faith. And as he was addressing those kids, it made me st- think of step three in Alcoholics Anonymous. And just in case you don't know what step three, step three is made a, de- made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. So, the youth pastor at our church said, uh, him, he, "Like he said, he was addressing them about their faith, and he gave this particular uh, analogy. Uh, he had read an article recently about a young man who dies for exotic exotic fish uh, for aqu- aquariums. He said that one of the most popular aquariums in in the fish tank is the shark." He explained that if you catch a small shark and confine it, it will stay at a size proportionate to the aquarium that you put it in. Sharks can be six inches long, yet fully matured. But if you turn them loose into the ocean, they will grow to their normal length of eight feet. That same thing that happens to sharks can happen to our Faith. We have to take care of our faith, and it is entire, entirely our responsibility. So, I would say to those listening out there in regards to recovery no one can make me go to meetings. No one can make me pray for others. No one can force me to go do service work. No one can make me believe in God. I have to choose to do that for myself. And if I never pray, I never go to meetings. I never grow, work the steps. I will not grow. Now on to Mr. John M. from Nashville. Enjoy. Okay, everybody. So we're sitting here with Mr. This is unusual, at least for me. I've never had another John M. on the program, but we are sitting here with Mr. John M. And uh, he is actually... Uh, When I say sitting here, uh, he's not a a eyeballed... Well, he is eyeballed eyeball with me. We can see each other, but he is in the uh, great city of Nashville, Tennessee. Is that correct?
0: Correct. Yes, John. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Yeah, glad to have you on. So uh, John and I have been communicating back and forth for a while, trying to get him set up to get on uh, Sober Speak here and get him recorded and... uh, and I'm really anxious to hear a story today, I think is, uh, I've heard bits and pieces of it. Uh, I think the uh, Sober Speak audience is definitely going to relate to us. So, uh, John, let's dive into your story. Uh, you know, I, I like you said, I know there are lots of ups and downs with that. Uh, why don't you just kind of take us back uh, to the beginning, wherever you want to start. Uh, we'll work our way up and I'll probably have some questions here and there as you're moving through it.
0: Okay. Um, so I grew up in a, a, a wonderful household, wonderful parents, loving family. Uh, both sets of grandparents were extremely supportive. I grew up in uh, a great town of San Antonio, Texas. And um, from a very early age, I felt uh, different. I felt um, not quite a part of. Something wasn't right with me. And I didn't figure it out until till I was about 35, and, I'll, and I can tell you why here in a little bit. But from an early age, I just didn't feel quite right. And I felt like, you know, now looking back, that disease of addiction was always there. And it was, there was a, a spark inside of my soul that was always there. And it got ignited through some, some trauma later on in my life. Once that trauma ignited it, then I was off to the races and I couldn't stop. Now, growing up with a loving family and great support system, um, I was uh, Mr. Personality in high school, I graduated with uh, senior year in high school with uh, <laughs> senior superlatives at prom. I was named class clown, most outgoing, most school spirited, and best personality. And I thought I just had it all. And um, I go off to college, and things were things just kind of rolled easy for me. Uh, was uh, ended up my senior year at, at Baylor University. I was social chairman of our fraternity. I was. Um, uh, had a full ride scholarship i had gotten i had earned um, full ride scholarship my senior year. same same scholarship athletes got i wasn't an athlete by any means uh, but i was um, part of the athletic uh, teams and doing video work as a communications major
1: oh so you can you so you can get a scholarship going in there doing video work for the athletic program
0: right yes yeah there's all these little loopholes if you if you you know pay attention and if you find a you know something in your major or something in uh, a field of study that you're going into there, I had no idea, but I had some fraternity brothers that they paid for their four years of school by doing video. They did video in high school and they got into college and did it. And I, one of them uh, graduated and I got his scholarship my senior year. Very nice. So, yeah, it was really cool. So and I felt Bay- like that
2: was- Baylor for those of, uh,
1: that don't know, I mean, that's down here where I am in Texas. Uh, it is uh, uh, very. It, it's a prestigious school. It's uh, very uh, expensive. It's a private school, correct?
0: Correct. Yes. Yeah. Private Baptist um, University.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Baptist University. So you. Had, it sounds like you had some sort of religious upbringing. Then is that right?
0: Yeah. So growing up, um, Southern Baptist. My grandfather was a. a I would say semi-famous uh, preacher. He came up at the same time in Minnesota as Billy Graham. So he and Billy Graham were were friends early on. Um, so much so that they they stayed friends throughout the years. And uh, when my grandfather grandfather passed, uh, Billy sent flowers to his funeral. And um, so uh, so I grew up, yeah, in the, in the Baptist church, and uh, that was that was a big part of part of our lives. Um, of course, when I got into college and got into the drinking scene with the with the fraternity, that stuff kind of faded away, faded into the background. That that spiritual connection um, that my parents tried to instill in me uh, growing up It uh, took a back seat for sure. And I, I, my ego started running the show again, coming out of high school. I just, I had this ego building up that I had it all together going to college. I'm doing the fraternity thing. I'm dating our uh, fraternity sweetheart. Who's a cheerleader and I got a full ride scholarship and things were looking really good my senior year and it all changed in a, in a seven second incident. Um, we, a I'd seven set up this,
1: second incident,
0: seven seconds that changed everything for me. What was that? That was a car accident and um, there was uh, no drinking or driving was involved. We were coming back from, a, from a, a cruise I had set up for about 45 friends and fraternity brothers and friends. We, we went from, from Waco, Texas to New Orleans. We go on this booze cruise for spring break and we're coming back from this trip and we're all just kind of hung over <laughs> and uh, pretty tired and we're driving uh, on I-45 uh, outside of Houston going back to Waco and a tire blew out in a, in a friend's car. And uh, there was four of us in the, in the SUV. Nothing anybody could have done differently. Um, the driver, we just had the crew set on 70, beautiful weather out, and a tire blows out, right rear tire. I was in the back rear passenger seat, and the car just starts shaking violently. And in, the, in that moment, I told myself, no, 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 this isn't about to happen. It's not about to happen. And as the car drifted toward the median, as soon as we hit the grass, I said, this is it. I'm going to die right now. And the car did like a 180, and then just started rolling. So the car just flipped around, and as it flipped and did this 180, um, my feet got out the window. My legs somehow got out, you know just got out the out the window, and I had my seatbelt on, so I was held in place. Otherwise, I would have been injected out of the car. So thankfully, I was held in place, but my legs got crushed numerous times. Uh, conscious the whole time, seeing it happen, you know the the, the metal crashing and the glass everywhere. And, and I mean, just. The, the force that you're going with, you feel just completely out of control. And I, I was waiting for everything to just turn to black. Like I, you know, like at the end of a movie, just everything just shuts down. I was waiting for like the color bars to come up In, in video work. We, we would put color bars up before or after uh, some of our, our video work. I was just waiting for these color, you know, and then you hear that tone, that ding. I was just waiting for the end and the car comes to a stop. Uh witness report say we rolled between six and 12 times. Um, but we rolled across the median, across the other side of the interstate. We missed some cars that were coming at us, and we landed in a field. And uh, as the car landed upside down, came to a stop, I'm thinking, it's going to blow up, it's going to blow up, it's going to blow up, because that's what happens in the movies. And so I tried to get out. And as I did, I, I stood. Or I, I, I put my, my legs at the edge of the window, and I tried to stand up. And as I looked down, I could see the bottom of my foot. My, my ankle was severed in half, and so the bottom of my right foot wrapped around. And so it was essentially hanging on by muscle fibers. Bones were completely split over. I could see bones on both sides of my shin and my, and my ankle. And um, my foot was just kind of dangling, if you can imagine that. And so I threw myself out of the car and I crawled, as, you know, as far away as I could until I felt safe. That if it blew up, I wasn't going to get hurt. And I looked back and three of my friend, my three friends are still in the car. And so I said, you know what, if this car blows up and I'm not helping, then I wouldn't be able to live with myself. So, I so said, I'm going in whether, whether it blows up or not. So I crawled in, got one friend out. Um, two friends were, one was pinned in from uh, head from the car crashing in on her, on her head. And so her boyfriend was up front uh, attending to her. Uh, she was in the driver's seat. And so the car never did explode, uh, thankfully. But imagine, you know, these scenes in a movie when you have, you know, you got police cars coming in, you got fire trucks, you got ambulances, They have the jaws of life coming out and they're cutting my friend Ashley out of the driver's seat. And as they're cutting her out, the helicopter life flight comes in and lands on the side uh, and the field next to us. I mean, it's just this absolute terror of a, of a scene. And I'm, I'm just laying there with a blanket over my legs at this point, just in complete shock, um, waiting for the first set of first responders to get to Ashley. They pull her out of the car and they get her in the helicopter. And, um, she passed away before they got her to hospital. So her name was Ashley Furman. Um, I try to try to say her name to keep her memory alive. She's just a a sweet down 19 years old and and didn't do anything wrong to deserve it. Um, So I ended up, my journey took me from uh, getting me to the first hospital, taking me over to... uh,
1: Real quick, did did they ever... Do you know what the do? Do you know why those the the tires blew up or whatever happened there to make that occur?
0: Yeah, good question. Sometimes I I breeze over that because it's not something I always tell people. um, But I don't mind sharing it here. It was a a Firestone Ford Explorer um, rollover. Ah. so back in two thousand, they had recalled millions of Firestone tires because uh, tread was separating off this one particular type of tire, um, coupled with a Ford Explorer was rolling and killing people across the country. They knew both companies knew about it. They covered it up and we were one of the, um, you know, victims. victims.
1: Oh my goodness.
0: So that does come into play pretty heavily. Uh, if you can imagine, uh, and I'll go into that here in just a minute, but as I ended up going through 14 surgeries in a year, uh, I went from being super egotistical. I had everything going for me at school and super connected with, uh, you know, social life and in class classes. And now, now all of a sudden I'm home in my dad's home office in a hospital bed by myself going through surgery after surgery, after surgery to try to save my my feet. And, um,
1: to try to save your feet. Is that what you said?
0: Well, yeah, both of them, both of them were injured. Uh, but uh, one of my right one was more severely injured. So, um, it just, my quality of life kept declining. Uh, I had to have a, a shoe with a special sole built up on it. And I was losing height to my right side as the ankle, as the bone structure started to collapse over that year. And through all those surgeries, there wasn't good blood flow to the ankle. Um, just a lot of contamination from the accident, a lot of uh, dirt and you know, gravel and grass and all that stuff. When I crawled in and out of the car a couple of times, just picked up all this debris and, and it never really could all flush out and, and heal um, adequately. So I finally got to the point where they wanted to do, they took one of my abdominal muscles out already and attached it into this hole I had in the foot. So they basically just kind of put a piece of meat on the side of my foot and let let that heal to take up that space. So, I mean, just looked deformed and uh, it was just a bad situation. 23, 22 year old active kid, not being able to hardly move around. I was on a cane everywhere. I was in a lot of pain and uh, I was depressed and gaining weight and, I couldn't do what I wanted to do and be with my friends. and So then the doctors came and said, well, we're going to need to take, we're going to need to fuse your ankle, but we're going to need to take bone out of your hip and do a bone graft. And I'm going, man, <laughs> amputation was always in the back of my mind because I told myself at the side of the accident, it's going to, they're going to cut this thing off. And so when it, when it came to it, they wanted to do more surgeries. I was like, man, can we just let this thing go. And so I went ahead and opted to, to make that decision to go ahead and amputate. So I have a, a below-the-knee amputation on my right side. That uh,
1: How did that change you? I'm sure it did in some form.
0: Well, it gave me a better quality of life physically, but I never dealt with the underlying issues. I never dealt with that terror and that fear and that, like, I'm going to die in these moments. And not just, you know, then there's that. And then there's all the surgeries and all the, all the, trauma of seeing my leg just, you know, I had like ooze coming out of my leg and I had to stuff like little pieces of gauze down in these holes in the foot. And I mean, just gross, gruesome stuff that I never thought I'd be dealing with. And, um, so I thought I would cut the leg off. And I think this, this ties into recovery. If the problem is, uh, alcohol or the problem is an addiction. Well, if I just stop doing that, then my life's going to be okay. So I thought if I cut the problem off the the bum ankle, the bum foot, then I'm going to be okay. And so I did, I cut the leg off and I got a prosthetic on and I was off to the races. I was skydiving and doing triathlons and doing, I was more active after my amputation than before because I wanted to one prove to myself or really prove other people that I was fine. Um, But I didn't deal with the underlying emotional turmoil. And so no matter what I did physically, it didn't matter what I accomplished physically, emotionally and spiritually, I was always distraught.
1: And I'm assuming this is similar to post-traumatic stress syndrome. Am I, Absolutely. Am
0: I okay. Yeah, and it was crazy. I, I wasn't diagnosed with PTSD for like a decade. I mean, why? Why didn't anybody figure that out? I don't know. Part of it was I was lying. I wasn't honest with my doctors because I wanted pills, and I wanted. I was drinking a lot, and I, you know, part of it was I wasn't being honest. Um, but you think somebody would have, <laughs> you know, hey, you just went through a, a major ordeal. We should look at PTSD as a as a diagnosis.
1: Right. Okay. So, so, so then after that, you talked about the alcohol and the drugs. So, did uh, did it take off after that? Your alcohol and drug usage?
0: Yeah. So it just, I mean, sky, boom, skyrocketed, and I got the pain pill. I was, you know, using the pain pills as prescribed. Really, that year of all those surgeries, I was under my parents' care, and I was, you know, uh, but once I got out on my own. And I graduated uh, Baylor on a, a, I walked the stage on a temporary prosthetic six weeks after my amputation. And I was determined to show everybody I was okay. And so keep alcohol and pills, uh, you know, in my system and I could go and I had the confidence to go do anything that I wanted to go do. And I ended up leaving everything I knew in Texas to go work on a master's in counseling out in San Diego. So that was another kind of disconnect for me. I was, uh, I was leaving everything I knew to go pursue something that I thought was you know, going to be serving others.
1: So how did that bridge come about? How did you think about going from Baylor out to uh, San Diego to be a counselor?
0: Okay. So here's where the money comes in. So as a result of the car accident, I signed settlement, a multi-million dollar settlement the day before I graduated college. Wow. So, yeah. So I already, you know, I had this like kind of ego with my scholarship in college. I felt like an athlete. And then here I go, I'm about to go into the real world. And I just signed this contract at a Schlotsky's on I-35 in Waco, Texas with my attorney and my dad sitting there. And here's, here's, you know, a couple million dollars and I'm graduating the next day and every, all my family and friends are in town, you know, great, John's graduating. And, um, uh, so I had, you know, a f- fallback. I had, I, I had a job set up out of, out of Baylor and I was there a couple of months and I was like, you know what? I want to go help other people. It's like this, this tragedy happened to me for a reason. I want to go help other people and not just do some, you know, business sales kind of job that I originally had. So because I had some fallback money, I just quit the job. I didn't talk to anybody about it and consult anybody about it. I just I went in one day and said, this isn't for me. Uh, there was also a lot of drugs, uh, in my system, um, during those, those days that, uh, kept me from thinking straight and thinking rationally. Um, but it didn't really matter because I had some money, you know. Will
1: you say drugs, Were they more prescription drugs?
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Prescription okay. drugs. Correct. So it had progressed from alcohol in college to then I got the pain pills and then I couldn't focus because I'm using the opiates. And so then I go to a doctor and I get Adderall for ADD. I diagnosed ADD, which was kind of a also part of my PTSD, the focus part. And I started using that um, immediately. Um, then I couldn't sleep because of all the Adderall I was on. So I got sleeping pills and then I'm taking this Ambien while drinking. And so these, you know, constant cocktail in my system for, for years.
1: And so how you were what, 22, 23, 24. 23, and all yeah. This 23.
0: Yeah. 23 at this point. And I just said, you know what, I'm if I go get a master's in counseling, uh, let me see what are the best schools. And so two of the top five schools were uh, Boston university where my brother was living in Boston and then San Diego State. Uh, so I interviewed with both. I got accepted to both. And so I could either go Boston, East Coast, or San Diego, West Coast. And I was like, I got to go out to the sun. I got to go out to San Diego. <laughs> it's hard to pass up.
2: You're right. So was that when you, so you took the money from the settlement and then you went out to invest that in yourself with good
1: intentions uh, to be a counselor and uh, uh, make good in the world, correct?
0: Correct. Correct. Um, and then... Yeah, you know, I got out there. I bought a condo on Mission Bay. You buy a, you know, twenty four year old dude buying a four hundred fifty thousand dollars condo on Mission Bay, who's not in his right mind, not a good idea. Uh, bought several pieces of property in Texas uh, as a investment to develop, and that just, oh my gosh attorneys and got screwed. And then I bought a piece of property in San Diego as well to maybe build a house on one day. And that, I mean, that took eight years to get out of that and thousands and thousands of dollars of attorney's fees there. So just because you have money does not mean your problems go away. If anything, they just get, they just get more expensive.
1: And no, in fact, I've heard many times that money will just make you more of what you are already. Uh, Yes.
0: Yes. It made me more selfish, made me more self-centered It made me more egotistical, you know, all these things that I already was. It just uh, magnifies what you already are. Mm -hmm. Yep. That's so true.
1: All right. So you're in San Diego. Uh, You're working your way through uh, counseling school. I'm sorry. That's probably not the term for it, but uh, Mm -hmm. you're out there. You're trying to get your master's and take me from there.
0: Yeah. So I had started dating a girl that I knew at Baylor and um, not the same girl that was in our, our accident, um, but she and we ended up getting married. And so she moved out after my second year in graduate school. So she moved out. And
1: so were you married, and she wasn't with you in San Diego? Is that what you mean?
0: No. So when I moved out of San Diego, we started dating, and then uh, so we dated for a year and we're engaged for a year. And so we were together for two years. We were engaged, uh, dated, and engaged for two years, but we never lived in the same state. Ah. So she had no idea what she was getting into
1: because
0: I could put on the act, you know, for weekend, three, four day weekends or the holidays, um, in terms of my substance, my substance abuse and alcohol. So when she moved in, it didn't take her very long to start scratching her head and going, something's not right. But neither of us really, I, I didn't know how bad I was. She didn't know anything about, about alcoholism or addiction. And so She just told her parents, something's not right. I can't put my finger on it. And I was just a master, you know, chameleon. I would just kind of rotate from one substance to the other to not get, try not to get caught with one thing or the other. However, it progressed to doing things I never thought I would do. I'm growing, you know, like I mentioned earlier, I grew up in the church and Baptist church and kind of famous grandfather preacher. And next thing you know, I'm driving to Tijuana to go buy pain pills and sneaking, sneaking stuff across the border in Mexico, you know, and stuff I never thought I would do. And, um, it just, uh, was very lonely. I was very lonely. I was afraid of anything and everything. I was afraid of what other people thought of me. I was afraid of what I thought of myself. I was afraid of getting caught um i was Getting afraid of caught
1: with the with the drugs and the alcohol yeah. and the lifestyle you're relating so it was a double double uh yes. dr jekyll mr hyde
0: yes because i i've always had this you know nice persona and he's the nice guy you know and and my and that, and that's generational too with my family that i've had to learn and work through through therapy is that we can't i can't just put on this front all the time i've got to be able to break down and be okay Not being
1: okay and that's a big reason why I wanted to have you on sober speak today because uh, I knew that uh, You know, I had heard one other uh, recording of you and I had seen some of your uh a bio, if you will, and I knew that you were very vulnerable about where you've been, what happens to you, and vulnerability is what comes through on these podcasts. Just real quick, I'm going to do a little uh, uh, announcement here that will uh, uh, go on with the rest of your story. We'll be, we'll be continuing with our conversation with Mr. John M. in a moment. Just a reminder, you are listening to Sober Speak, You can find us on the web at SoberSpeak.com. There you will find all of our back episodes. There's 50 plus of them. You can also find the donate button on our website. uh, If the spirit moves you to do, please keep in mind this podcast is funded by you, the listener, SoberSpeak is a self-supporting organization through our own contributions. We are not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. We do not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes. Okay, now back to Mr. John M. Sitting here with John M. So, John, so we're in San Diego. Uh, Your wife has now kind of caught wind of your particular lifestyle. She's kind of scratching her head. Take me from there.
0: Yeah, so um, it just so happened I I get to the end of my third year of graduate. It was a three-year program, rigorous program. I get to the end of it and I start and I realize. Not not real consciously, but subconsciously, knowing I can't I can't really go help other people because I'm not really I've never really helped myself. You know, the, going to working on in counseling, I was able to focus on other people. I was able to learn how to how to focus on other people and how to help them with their problems. But all along, I was avoiding my own. Mm-hmm. You know, I think a lot of people do that in in their work and their you know nurses and, and people who are in well meaning jobs go to serve others, but if you don't serve yourself first, you know, if you don't take the oxygen mask off, uh, in a, in a airplane, you know, cabin pressure, you know, change, if you don't put the mask on you first, then you can't help the other people around you. And, uh, so that I, I've learned through my journey that that was, it was a diversion from having to really look at me so that I could just look at other folks. And so I got to the end of the program and I'm about to graduate in May and somewhere around April or May, my cousin calls me up. He's an actor. Uh, his name's Josh Henderson. Not a not a big name, but he's been Desperate Housewives and um, a number of you know shows and projects, and movies over the years. And so he calls me up and says, "Hey, I'm gonna I've got this biggest role I've had to date. I'm gonna play this uh, amputee soldier. I'm gonna get my leg blown off in this roadside bomb IED. Can you take me through what you went through in your car accident to help me connect with my character?" And I was like, "Sure, man. That's kind of cool. You know, what are the odds?" And so we started talking on the phone and started walking him through what I went through and the helicopter landing on the side of the road and everything. And he goes, yeah, in the scene, they're, they're going to have a helicopter land on the side of the road and they're going to, the guy's going to come and try to pick me up and my, my legs going to separate and uh, the medic's going to have be holding my, my, you know, my limb, my foot in his hand. I was like, yeah, man, that's real similar to me. I said, Hey man, if you need any more help on, on set or anything, let me know. So sure enough, one thing led to another, they, they, they told him to bring me up. The producers and directors said, bring your cousin up to, to L.A. Uh, we want to take a look at him. And so I showed up on uh, – they were doing a boot camp training before the uh, season started. It was a show called Over There uh, on FX. It just lasted one season, uh, so it wasn't super uh, popular. And, uh, it, I, they ended up hiring me on. They said, you're hired on for 13 episodes that we're filming. Uh, we're gonna, uh, You're going to be called the uh, technical consultant and we're going to have you on set every day and make sure everything looks accurate. Uh, what kind of prosthetic would he have if he's just getting out of rehab? What kind of prosthetic would he have if he's going to go to, go to, you know, try to train to get back into battle? Um, his character was going to get addicted to painkillers. Um, right. And so I was like, perfect, man. I didn't even have to act. I just had to show up and just be me, you know? (laughs) So, um, I basically kind of left my wife in San Diego and I was so caught up in my own addictions and, and drinking and, and uh, prescription pills that I pretty much just said, I'm going to LA to do my thing, you're doing your nanny job down here, I'll talk to you later, was was the message that I sent to her. Um and so I to 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 work in the in the industry in LA, you gotta be there. So um here I go, I bought a condo in LA, got a condo in San Diego, got a condo in LA. Um feeling like a, a rock star because uh, people magazine and access Hollywood and these national media outlets came up to interview me and my cousin. And I'm thinking, man, I, I, mean, I just slid right into it. I just, you know, great opportunity. How many people on their first, you know, TV show, their first opportunity to be on a major Hollywood set, get people magazine coming out and interviewing you. You know, and it, it doesn't happen that often. You, you know, it takes take some time for people magazine to come, come knocking at your door. And so I was like, man, this is easy. This is, everything's just coming easy to me. And, uh, so I've moved up to LA full time. I got an agent the show after 13 episodes, got, got cut, got canned. And so I said, Hey, there's a nice little niche in the industry. I'm going to, I'm going to ride this out and see what happens. So I got into acting classes, got an agent, started playing the game and ended up working over a couple of years doing that on uh, NCIS and ER, um some people might know me from <laughs> I've got one scene or really one word in the movie super bad uh, a lot of a lot of uh, you know my generation uh, knows that movie got seen with Jonah Hill and that'm I'm, I'm the prosthetic guy on the prosthetic leg that jogs past Jonah Hill and curses Adam as I run past him on the track and um, so things things kept uh, building little by little in in l a as well as my addiction and as well as uh, tension in the marriage, tension at home. Uh, but we had, we had to put up the. I had to put up this front that everything was okay. And my wife started talking to people on the side, you know, Hey, something's, something's going on. He's, he's drinking a lot. Pills are going missing. Um, spilling marijuana around the house, you know, just, just, uh, things just continue to progress.
1: How long are you married at this time? A couple years something? Like at this
0: that? point, we got married 2004. This is like 2007, 2008.
2: Okay.
0: So, um, we had our first born son there and, uh, my, my brother had moved out to LA from New York. He was struggling with addiction and, uh, he moved, uh, got out of New York, moved to LA to be, kind of be closer to us. And, um, I really reached the top here. Here's where we kind of have some, another up and down is I, I, I felt I reached the top when we got to the Playboy Mansion. I've I mentioned this on other interviews, but, um, when you get to the Playboy Mansion with with uh, Emma Stone and John Lovitz and David Spade and Adam Sandler and, you know, these folks I'm going, I, I have arrived. This is what guy doesn't want to move to Hollywood and get blown up on major sets with blood and guts and, and go to the playboy mansion with, you know, some of my, some of my idols, like Adam Sandler and David Spade, all their movies. And-
2: okay. So I have to ask you, right. Did you meet you Hefner there or was he there that day?
0: They, uh, they had security pretty tight around. Yeah, he was there. I asked if I could get into his tent and uh, they, secur- security just shook their head.
2: No. Oh, he has his own particular tent? How does that work?
0: Well, it was, an, it was a party. It was a, after a, a red carpet event for a movie premiere and the, the after party was at the Playboy Mansion. So we go there and each of the major actors and actresses in the movies had their own cabana kind of tent. And so he had his tent kind of right in the middle, and so I, I asked if I could get in there, and they were like,
2: oh, gosh, "Not this, uh, no, you're, you're nobody." Yes, it <laughs> was worth the shot.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. You don't know if you don't ask. <laughs>
2: All right, so I I diverted you. Yeah, the Playboy Mansion caught my attention there, right?
0: So go ahead. Yeah. So you know that that experience happened, and it was just uh, about two months after that that uh, we got the. Uh, dreaded phone call that my brother didn't show up for work, and um, he was uh, my, my best friend, my only sibling, and it concerned me. Being given his history of, of substance use and and our uh, complete neglect as a family to address it um, because of the stigma of addiction. That stigma that that kept won um, me from stepping out of the shadows sooner, and kept my brother from us encouraging my brother to get the help that he really needed, the life saving help he needed. Uh, that stigma. Um, you know, took, took him down. Um, unfortunately he passed away from a, from an overdose in his Beverly Hills home. And, um, he was, he was found by, by none other than me. Oh wow! And I've got to be honest with you. It was, it was 10 years ago today, 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 10 years ago today, I kicked in my brother's door in his room and saw what 196 people die of overdose a day in the United States right now. 196 overdoses a day my brother was just one these are real families these are real people These are are real hearts and souls that need help through treatment and through 12-step work and through therapy And if you don't get the people who need the help that if you don't get them the help that they need um, It can lead to um, exactly what happened with my brother
1: Okay, so I, I you know, I want to be respectful of you, especially on this day Um, but I I can see, right. You all can't see John right now. I can see him. Uh, his eyes are closed and it definitely brought up something within you and some sort of images that you're, uh, seeing for yourself. So if you want to dive into that a little bit further, what you discovered with your brother and what it brought up for you and what it means to you today, you can, but if not, you want to go on to something else. I completely understand.
0: Sure. Sure. Thank you. Yeah, I'm okay. Uh, thing I've learned in, in recovery is that, uh, feelings really don't last that long. I push feelings away for so long. I just don't want to feel it. I don't want to feel it. I don't want to feel it. I want to, I want everybody to think that I'm okay. I want to lie to myself and say that I'm okay. But right now in this moment, if I'm not okay, that's okay. I can be sad and it's not going to last for years. It's going to last for a little bit of time. Do a little breathing. I'm connected with you, connected with your audience right now. I'm not alone. We prayed before coming on here, so I know God. My, you know, God's with me. So yeah, when uh, I kicked in the door, my brother had been um, he had been deceased for three days, and it's just a I think paints a a good kind of analogy for what addiction does. Addiction wants to and and uh, wants to keep people isolated and alone, and you don't hear many people. Um, drinking themselves to death, or or dying of overdoses in in large groups. You know, it usually happens alone. And also the fact that my brother's house was like tucked away in the shadows of the of of, of the hills of Beverly Hills. You know, it's just he was the house was just never really never warm. It was just it was always cold and dark and um, unfriendly. And um, you know that's that's how he died. He died in a in a cold, unfriendly dark corner of what people think is is just you know the top and it doesn't matter what kind of education he had an mba from georgetown he was smart as anything i was always jealous of his intellect um and his uh, social abilities to connect with people um but he he it was fueled by by addiction for a good 20 years
1: well god bless your brother rest in peace
0: right yeah his name's matt 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 Mabry, and, uh, you know, he's, he's one of the reasons, you know, with big reasons why I do what I do today and and working in, in, in the field of, of addiction to, to try to get people to, to go get the help that they need.
1: All right. So I know what you're, I, I, I'm familiar with some of your sobriety date, I believe, or what your sobriety date is. And so I know that it's not like you kicked in that door and then all of a sudden you just decided that's it, I'm quitting, right? So why don't you go on past that and kind of take me through the years after that?
0: Yeah. So things just got, got worse after that. We tried, we, we did get out of California. We knew we didn't want to raise our kids out there, and my wife is uh, from Chicago, and I'm from Texas. And so it was too cold to go there, too cold to go to Chicago, too hot to go to Texas. And we decided on on Tennessee, Nashville uh, as a good kind of middle ground.
1: Okay, so this um, is like 2008, 2009, right in that area? Yeah,
0: 2009. We moved out here in July 2009.
1: Okay, about 10 years ago.
0: hmm Okay. Yeah.
1: So so let's then, um, I know this is a complicated a question for you, uh, because I asked you right before we got started here, and that is your sobriety date is, and you may want to explain that in the way you want to explain it. So go ahead and talk about your sobriety date.
0: So, <laughs> so my sobriety date, uh, to be completely honest, is September seventeenth of this year. Okay. So it yeah. is go ahead. Uh, I have like, like, uh, the rest of my story, the rest of my life, there there's ups and downs. And, uh, most recently, um, my, uh, my down was, uh, cross addiction of uh, pornography. I had, I felt I had the drugs and alcohol under control. And even as somebody that, that, that does public speaking and, and working in the treatment industry, I wasn't working a rigorous program of recovery of a uh, 12 step recovery that as rigorous as I needed to be. And um, I was just, just getting by. And if that, and I was using my work as my recovery, as opposed to my 12 step meetings, as opposed to regu- you know, continuing my step work, um, diving in deeper as I, as I need to with, with my mentor and it opened the door for a cross addiction to come in. And that being pornography had been something I've dealt with over the years, kind of in and out. Um, but it came with vengeance, uh, this past, uh, really kind of six months. And the fact that my wife and I had been married for 14 years through all of my, uh, I first entered recovery in 2011 and I've had a handful of relapses. And then I got the last time I got sober was 2015 and I had, uh, a good two years sobriety, the longest I'd ever had. And then the pornography crept in. And when something like when that crept in for me, it started to, it put even more tension on the marriage than had ever been there before because of all the stuff that we've had in the past. And then my wife kind of the straw broke the camel's back. And my uh, drinking sobriety date is September 17th as well, because it led to uh, me drinking as a result of covering up for the pornography. and So I'm here to tell you if, <laughs> if you replace one addiction with another uh, to try not to do the first one, it can open the, it leaves the door op- or left the door open for me for my drug choice to come in. And, um, as of today, uh, we are about three weeks into our d- divorce process and I'm, uh, 82 days sober and I am vowed to go through this divorce process completely sober. And I have (laughs) a lot of support around me to help me do that. More support than I've ever had.
1: Yeah, well, God bless you. Yeah, you know, I've had a lot of people on Sober Speak who are multi, multi years uh, sober. I mean, 40 plus, 30 plus, 20 plus, uh, time after time. And I told myself that uh, this year, I wanted to have people that were closer to the fire, if you will, uh, and who um, uh, yeah, I, I just you know whether here's the deal whether you're four days sober or four months sober or forty years sober, we all deal with the same thing, right? And I want people to hear a variety of experiences, uh, just so that they can, just so that they can say maybe if that guy or gal can do it. Um, I can too. So, like I said at the top of this, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is that I appreciate your vulnerability and your willingness to share. and um, uh, th- I think this will help a lot of people, John. Um, all right, so what else? So I, I kind of we we did a fast forward there after we got from um I'm out of San Diego, uh, coming back over to Nashville. I said, so that's been about 10 years ago. What else? What, what happened during those 10 years?
0: People, uh, somebody asked me the other day, what was the question? Um, what was kind of the breaking point for me to, uh, to go get help? That's, what, that's really what it was, is, you know, what, what made me go get help for the first time? What was the wake-up call? What was, what was my bottom um, initially? And what it was, was I had gotten in with uh, Dave Ramsey. Dave Ramsey's uh, radio personality. Yeah. You know, get, get people out of debt, you know. Financial
2: Peace
1: University, I think. Yes,
0: bit. yes. You know. So you is know. that
1: why you went to Nashville? He's out of Nashville, right?
0: No, that's not why we, why we came here. But I knew he was here. And my parents were lis- listening to the sh- listeners of the show. They told me about it. I was listening to it when I was out in Los Angeles. I was like, man, that would be cool if, if I could get a job there. So we moved here. And I ended up, I started interviewing and the interview process for Dave Ramsey is extremely rigorous. Back then in 2000, late 2010, I had to go through seven interviews over four and a half months. And he says this publicly. He says, the reason I have so many interviews is every time I hire a crazy person, I put in a new level of interviewing because I I hate hiring crazy people. (laughs) So here comes me. I'm on a lot of different prescription medications and a lot of alcohol. And I have a lot of uh, acting experience under my belt at this point. I've been acting my whole life. Really, it wasn't just the acting classes in LA that helped. I've been acting my whole life, letting people think that I'm somebody other than who I really am, This is broken, insecure. I'm not good enough. Something's wrong with me. Um, that was always, always underneath the surface. So I, I'm an actor my whole life. And so I, I went in there for these interviews and I got through them. And I end up getting hired. I got hired on, and uh, I'm on the phones talking to churches, calling churches on on behalf of Dave Ramsey.
2: So, was it like a sales?
0: Essentially, job? yes. Yeah. It was kind of a live event, live event sales team. Uh, yeah. We call and, and get churches to sign up for tickets and things. Gotcha. And apparently, in the fine print, when they get when you get hired on, it, it, I, I missed the part where they said uh, don't drink vodka and uh, pop uh, pills at the <laughs> desk while calling churches on behalf of uh, Mr. Dave Ramsey at his company. <laughs> so uh i got called into his office one day one morning got my my boss grabbed his boss and we got in an elevator and i was like this just seems kind of weird that there's a weird energy in this elevator right now this is is a little different than what i was expecting going to a company meeting and they go instead of us going like to the right to go to the the company-wide meeting on every wednesday morning they took me to the left and we walk, you know, walk, I'm going, Oh, maybe we're going to HR. Maybe I'm getting that. Maybe I'm getting like, you know, a raise or something. And we walk past HR's office and we go to Dave's office and there's Dave sitting at the round desk round table in in his office off to the side of his main desk and I sit down with my two bosses and HR and Dave. And he just says, you know, John, look, um, you obviously need some, some help and I can't help you in the way that you need help. But what I can do is I can let you go. And therefore, I'm, I'm going to let you go so you can go get the help that you need. And that was a great wake-up call. That was the wake-up call I needed, somebody that I looked up to and respected uh, outside of my family telling me, you have a problem.
1: Have you talked to Dave since uh, you have uh, gotten into
2: recovery?
0: I haven't. No, um, I've, I've attempted to contact uh, him through his office so as a result of this, well, I'll, I'll, I can go into that a little bit later if, if uh, time permits. But no, but my boss, uh, my boss's boss, who, who is one of Dave's right hand men, I have seen him and I have uh, been able to make amends to him uh, for for my actions there right. at the office and how it affected him and his you know, team, how it affected the team. Uh, but I haven't uh, yet seen Dave yet. But well, that's
2: interesting. You're one of a handful of people in the world cool. who has uh, gotten uh, terminated by uh, the actual Dave Ramsey.
0: Well, and and I and I made I actually I think ticked a lot of people off because now if you go to his website, uh, it, it says the interview process is nine interviews. <laughs> So it used to be seven when I was there and he says he, he adds a layer every time he lets a crazy person in. So jokingly, I say I had added one or two levels of interviewing. So anybody going to interview now, I'm sorry, but uh, if you just show up sober, you'll be ahead of the head of the game.
2: oh that's hilarious all right well i mean it's hilarious in some ways <laughs> a little bit sad in others right all right so you uh so okay so you're so take me on from the day ramsey and how you got into the field you're in nowadays
0: so yeah multiple rounds of treatment over the next uh, several years inpatient outpatient sober living uh, i've done a lot of that uh, at one point, had gotten where my wife had kicked me out, and was living in a, in a trailer uh, on the banks of the Cumberland River here outside of Nashville.
1: Your uh, wife was it. living in the trailer, or you no, were in
0: the trailer? No, 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 She gets to live in the nice. <laughs> she are in the nice house with the <laughs> okay. children. Um, I did not. Uh, that was a consequence. You know, my consequences started to build. You know, first a job loss, then it's you know uh, financial. You know, now now I'm paying for multiple rounds of treatment, so there's financial consequences starting to pile up. Uh, no insurance for the family because I'm kind of unemployable for a period of time. Mm. So those started to build up, build up tension in the home, in the marriage. Right? Um, another kid comes along, and next thing you know, I'm I'm I, I wake I'm waking up uh, in a trailer uh, with a roommate named Beaver. And, and <laughs> no joke, man. <laughs> In was my, in my was I, I mean,
2: a man or a woman? He
0: was. He, well, he was a boy. He was an okay. 18, 20-year-old okay. kid, just gotcha. with hairy beard. And he was from the sticks of Tennessee. And, uh, I, you know, going from the Playboy Mansion to a trailer with a roommate named Beaver. I <laughs> uh, can't make this up. After being fired by Dave Ramsey, this is, <laughs> this is real life. It's <laughs> my life. So, yeah, multiple rounds of treatment. Um, saw how I was, you know. So different uh, elements of treatment that worked for me, that didn't work for me. Uh, the consistent message that I was uh, being taught along the way was twelve-step uh, programs, and those have uh, you know have always been something I've come back to. If if I, if I wasn't working it um, the way I should have been, you know, I always try to find an easier, softer way. I'll work the steps for a little bit, and then I'll back off, and you know, life starts to kind of simmer down a little bit. Relationships start to come back into into you know better better form. Um, Start getting, you know, a little bit of work here and there and start letting off, letting off the the gas a little bit. Last time that I was in uh, uh, treatment was in 2015 for, uh, and I went to addiction campuses facility and that's who I've been working for them for almost three years now. Um, And uh, there was just a a level of compassion within the staff there that other treatment centers I saw didn't have. And so that's what drew me to want to work for this organization over, over anybody else was that uh, I could see, I saw firsthand on campus how, how I was treated with, uh, with so much compassion. And so, and here's a great thing that came out of, came out of the turmoil. So I get fired by Dave Ramsey. And what happened was I, I didn't have a resource to turn to. He, he I earned the right to be fired and be let go. Now, what I wasn't provided was a resource. Here's a phone number to call. Here's a tre- here's a local treatment center. Or here's, you know, here's somebody to, to call. So I've been able to develop through through my work now with a drug free workplace training program. And so I go into businesses, we do it for free, and I go in and, and just uh train employees and supervisors on things to look for. Things to look for uh, in the workplace if somebody's struggling. If you smell something on somebody, if somebody's showing up late, their eyes are always bloodshot, you know, and how to handle those situations. You know, a lot of it's safety oriented. A lot of it's, you don't want somebody to get hurt on the job. You don't want somebody that might be using, you know, drugs or alcohol on the job to, to go injure themselves or somebody else. And um, so I'm able to, to take, you know, what, what was a bad situation to Dave Ramsey and turn that into, Hey, I saw an opportunity. Um, God presented me with the, with the wherewithal to go, Hey, here's an opportunity. That now we train thousands and thousands of people throughout the year um, and you know, employees and supervisors on, on what to look for if somebody's struggling at work, um, how, how to handle those situations and to have a compassionate approach to this. And not just maybe, maybe somebody doesn't need to be fired right away, but maybe somebody just needs to needs to hear from somebody that they're that they're cared for. And that, hey, I noticed you're showing up late, you know, a lot the last few weeks. Is there something going on you want to talk about um, and open up a dialogue within uh, an HR department um, to allow people to to maybe come forward and say, you know what, there is, you know, I'm going through a divorce or my child's struggling um, in school and it's causing, you know, stress or we're having some financial issues at home and allowing people uh, a voice and to be heard because the workplace is in a place where, you know, typically you get real personal. Uh, but it's where a lot of us spend most of our time is at work. And so I'm just trying to do my little part the best I can um, to train supervisors, HR managers to allow employees to come forward and, and ask for, uh, uh, help when they need it and to give them a resource to go to and, you know, uh, let them know what, what treatment resources are available in the area, uh, that they can send somebody to.
1: Right. Well, you know, John M, uh, I really enjoyed our conversation. I just want to ask a couple questions here before we go. And, uh, you know, I also want to say this, first of all, my, my, uh, Main concern is I just want you and your family to be well, and it sounds like you're on the right track. Do you feel comfortable like you're on the right track right now? Do you?
0: What's crazy is I think this is going to going to be the hardest thing I've ever gone through, um, based on um, what fam- family members and friends have told me that divorce is going is the most difficult thing that they've ever been through. Um, I've been through my brother's death. I've been through my leg amputation. I've never been through this before, so I'm absolutely terrified um, on one side. But on the other side, there's a uh, definitely a sense of peace uh, today um, because I've surrounded myself with, um, with additional mentors, additional uh, sponsors. Um, uh, I'm doing things differently. I'm doing things a little bit differently now than I have in the past. Uh, I'm, I'm scheduling more things during the week with people in recovery, so I'm around it more and more instead of isolating because it's real easy for me to isolate. Um, I'm going to a movie here in an uh, an hour and fifteen minutes. I'm going to a movie with a buddy from uh, one of my twelve step programs. Um, I'm helping take meetings to other treatment centers uh, throughout the week. Um, up my meetings to five to six, meet, you know, twelve step meetings a week. And um, I'm I'm spending a lot of time at. The, there's a new place here in Nashville called the Nashville Recovery Center. That's where I'm doing this interview from right here. Is uh, one of the one of the therapy offices in the Nashville Recovery Center. And it's a place where people can come anytime, day or night for free and hang out. And there's big screen TVs downstairs and a foosball table and a pool table. And they have twelve set meetings here all throughout the week. And so I've been spending a lot of time here to just surround myself with with a core group of people that can help me get through this. Because uh on my own devices, I'm <laughs> I'm not gonna be able to do it.
1: And when the fire uh gets off your butt, so to speak, in six months or a year or whatever don't forget what it's like, right, uh, to, uh, to pull back, you know, and what sort of challenges that can come from that. So I'm sorry, I usually don't give out advice. I just kind of like to share experience, <laughs> strength, and hope. But I think I just did John M. So, uh, so one question I want to ask for you, and um, if you had a particular – you don't have to say a name, you can, but if you have a role model in recovery, who would that be and why would that be?
0: My role model in recovery would be, man, he's really come through here is uh, my, my new, I'm going to say my new SA sponsor. Am I, am I allowed to say that?
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Yeah. Okay. So what don't you do for those who don't know what SA is, go ahead and talk about so, that
0: and what you mean. Man, <laughs> SA is not something I ever thought I would sign up for. Uh, AA was one thing coming forward in AA and NA meetings. SA is uh, sex anonymous. Uh uh, Sexaholics Anonymous, and um, I have uh, you know joined that program uh, recently. Gentleman that I heard in, in some meetings just share some amazingly vulnerable truths of his past um, drew me to him, and he is my role model right here, right now. I got to hear him share his story at a meeting yesterday. And here's the kind of person he is. He had me out to his house on Thanksgiving because I'm um, separated uh, from my wife right now. And, uh, we're not doing the, the holidays as normal this year with the children, um, that I went to, uh, the sponsor's house on Thanksgiving. He invited me out there. Um, my son's, my son's eighth birthday, uh, was two days ago. And so I wasn't able to, to be there for that. So we're going to my sponsor's house tomorrow and we're having cake and ice cream and pizza, uh, over at my sponsor's house tomorrow. I mean, he's opening up his house for me to be able to spend time with my children there. And, and I mean, that's what, that's what the program of of recovery offers it's you're not gonna find i i never found a drug uh, you know a drug dealer or a pill distributor or an alcoholic that would would do something that meaningful without question and uh, so this guy is, is somebody i'm um, i'm leaning on heavily and, and really look up to
1: oh god bless you god bless you god bless your family and uh, i just pray for peace and for comfort for you and your family, you know, we all just hang in there one day at a time, Mr. John M. And uh, you never know when it's going to be your turn or my turn in the barrel, so to speak. And uh, that's why we all don't have these uh, crises, if you will, all on the same day. Uh, so we can be there to help each other out, right?
0: And thank you so much for what you do. It's been an honor being on your show. And thank you uh, so much. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much. Bye-bye now.
0: All right. God bless.